Hi, welcome to Trash Future, the podcast that's the bonus episode of the show you're listening to right now. Uh, it's me, Gibbo, and I'm here <laughs> in the studio, of course, with uh, Ricey. Yeah, hi, it's me, your boy, Ricey. Uh, that's my dick in the picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got Cheeks calling in from New York. Hey! I, uh, I, I, everything, everything, um, when I read that story yesterday at like... Like uh, I, I, I didn't even know like how to kind of. I was in a bar and like I was trying to explain to a bunch of Americans what this was, and all I could kind of say was all I could use was like Irishman references. Mm-hmm, of course, mm. uh, and uh, the Irish guardsman, indeed. Uh, <laughs> and of course, we have Burnsy on the boards. Hello, it's me. Yes, uh, I'm sorry, I got to run because we've just gotten orders to hit formation with our packing list because the queen is dead, boys. Mm. I hope so you've got all your pants and socks, Nate. <laughs> do I do indeed. No, and uh, we are joined by our special guest, David. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be Josh or Morty? Uh, which is more appropriate for an American Jew? Morty sounds more like my. Natural That's, nickname. Uh, that sounds like the natural nickname. Um, mm. Yes, we. Uh, it turns out it's it's us. It's uh, it's the dick pic soldiers in the old times WhatsApp group here spuriously announcing news of the Queen's death on Twitter, um, and it, in a way that it turned out absolutely was not true. Britain remains a monarchy, um, and, and and will of course remain a monarchy going forward. Yeah, but the Queen um, the Queen died in 2016, right? That's like, course, yeah. that's a conspiracy, that's mm. the theory that, you know, that's the working theory that yeah. I have. She died of a broken heart because Hillary didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Gibbo has, says, the queen passed away this morning, heart attack, being announced 9.30 a.m. tomorrow. Of course, that came and went. Um, and then, I actually think that Ricey might be uh, James Bloodworth doing an impression of a working class person because it says, your balls has to be a wind up. And I was like, mm. Yeah, that sounds like Bloodworth mm. through and through doing the pirate impression. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Uh, but no, this is uh, this is Riley, it's Milo, Nate, and Hussein, and we're here with David Adler. David is policy director at DM25, uh, which is for our American listeners, uh, or our, indeed our European listeners who aren't aware of the left, is a um, is a leftist organization within the European Union that's trying to turn the thing into a little bit more of a leftist organization <laughs> and they also have a very spicy whatsapp group <laughs> <laughs> yes it's uh so whose dick is the picture we never say yeah it's mm. no it's uh it's like the, the dick of the unknown soldier like <laughs> it represents everyone's dick equally swinging from the cenotaph exactly <laughs> um i mean here's the thing Every, uh, there are lots of people who are like oh, oh you really think that they would announce something this important but by like leaking it from a whatsapp group with a dick pic as the avatar with a guy called gibbo and it's like yeah, that's pretty Britain, mm. to be honest with you. Yeah. Like yeah. all things considered, like, that was an incredibly believable representation of like what British squaddies are like. Like, yeah, the WhatsApp group has a picture of a dick. They've all got like in- inscrutable nicknames that are probably based on their surname and some like weird fucked up thing they did in a pub once. Like, yeah, I w- uh, I, I was going to say that I when when it came out, I was thinking about um, Sam Knight who did that really long piece in the Guardian about like when the Queen dies and this really elaborate process that are like loads of like british institutions have to go through and the idea that all of that got on set by like a guy called gibbo in this group where everyone mm. just like i imagine just like shares pictures of their dicks <laughs> exactly uh, nothing, yeah, uh, more, nothing more british act- than that ricey actually called that because he's still carrying around a kilogram of basmani rice in his anus from a pub bet in 2015 <laughs> exactly um yes that's the uh the, the squatty promise um, but yeah, that's, uh, so that's, that's the, that's the news. Uh, turns out London Bridge not falling down. Uh, Britain will live to fight another day. However, uh, I'd actually like to focus a little bit more on the political landscape of Europe, that union, which we are still notionally in. So David, what's going on in Europe right now? Well, it's funny you mentioned the, the English monarchy, because of course there is no monarch in Brussels and yet it still feels like we're being ruled by a set of kings and queens. <gasps> 
Yeah, indeed. So it's, it's nothing more than a mo- than a modern Habsburg Confederacy, except none of them have all, all of their like deficiencies are um are are sort of an internal shriveling of the soul. Exactly. They are quite weird looking though. I mean, like John Claude Juncker is like a. Oh no, wait, no. I'm thinking of Giva Hofstadt. Giva Hofstadt has a very like Habsburg vibe. There are many, many similar faces of Habsburg <laughs> resemblance. No, in more ways than one. I mean, it's it's crumbling. It has that crumbling sense of sort of not even recognizing the depths of its own corrosion. But I think it's a, it's a really surreal moment in, in the European Union because if you remember, let's say five years ago, mm-hmm. 2015, Paul Mason's running around Europe saying, it is all kicking off. And the sense was that things were really, really changing, mm-hmm. that the status quo was unsustainable, austerity was being imposed by this dangerous troika, and that leftist forces were rising just as populist monsters on the right wing were being unleashed as well. And... Through some complicated trickery that I'm sure we'll discuss today, somehow that crisis has sort of been pronounced over. Mm. And the forces of the, I said, let's call it the establishment, have been actually highly successful in neutralizing this so-called populist danger. And now Brussels feels kind of overwhelmed with this sense of serenity mm. and you know, as, really as if, as if nothing had changed and nothing had happened at all. And, and there's a weird kind of surreal thing that you can't really tell, like, did was that a dream? Did we all just imagine mm. all of those pieces that David Graeber and, and Paul Mason wrote about, you know, the, the rise of the left and the insurgent left and indeed of the insurgent right, uh, who are no longer seeming to pose this existential threat to the European Union? Yeah, because it's, it's actually very interesting. It turns out that Viktor Orban was just uh, Charlie Kaufman doing performance art. Exactly. You know, mm. Viktor Orban. So, again, let's look back five years ago or just a few years ago, he had the most radical, controversial views on migration. He was like, throw up these walls, basically buying loads and loads, kilometers and kilometers of barbed wire, putting Mm. it along the the Hungarian border, and was really quite a controversial dude. Mm. Fast forward four years, and even Viktor Orban's going into press conferences and saying, my view, my fringe view, is the consensus. My fringe view about Fortress Europe is now shared by even people like Macron, who proclaim to be my enemy. And so there's a sense in which mm. that populist right has kind of just drifted deeper and deeper into the center of European politics. And now there's a kind of shared consensus that actually Fortress Europe was right all along. It's weird, isn't it, that it didn't ring any alarm bells for people that they were putting up a massive wall to keep people out of fucking Hungary. I mean, <laughs> come on. Like, you know, you're in a crisis when people are like, I'd even rather live in Hungary than this shit. <laughs> But it's um are, are you are you saying seriously that the uh, the liberal technocrats in Europe, when faced with the with the need with a crisis that was going to force them to compromise with either the left or the far right, chose to let the far right into the halls of power? Yeah, it's not surprising. That's that, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. But I think what is surprising is the fact that is is the success with with, the, with which they did it. I mean, it's one thing to kind of make a gesture of compromise. It's another that they've actually successfully kind of neutralized that threat. So, and of course, a lot of this has to do with Brexit, right? I mean, just the the high cost and daunting complexity of leaving the European Union has mm. essentially convinced most of these right wingers. You know, look, 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 look. Let's take a snapshot. Mm-hmm. It's a day after Brexit. What happens? Uh, Marine Le Pen of the Rassemblement National, the far right in France, is standing in front of this poster with hands in chains, breaking free, and she's saying, "Call me Miss Frexit. The next domino to fall will be France." The same with the AfD. They were saying, get us the out of Germany. You can swear on this yeah, podcast. Okay, get, us yeah. fuck, get us the fuck out of Europe. Get us uh, the Scheiser out of Germany. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry, uh, out of Europe. And same I with that. The AfD, like, leaving Germany would be a funny <laughs> thing. <laughs> we're going to start doing shit in Belgium now. <laughs> I, like, I like the idea that the, uh, well, you know, you don't want the, you don't want, uh, the German far right deciding to do stuff in other countries or Germany. Uh, no. <laughs> no countries no, at all. Not. Crucially, Candace, mm. Owens learn, <laughs> Candace Owens should learn from, from this particular oh, thing. No countries. But it was um, the same across, I mean, you know, Salvini was doing the same thing in Italy. And of course, you had all these really, useless portmanteaus, Frexit, Grexit, Italy exit, Oxit, Oxit, whatever. Italy exit is particularly cursed. Oh, yeah. It yeah. was really in, stuck in the mouth mm. of, the, of the credentialed commentariat. But you fast forward four years and it's just not on the table. I mean, no one's talking about exiting the European Union. Mm. But, and mostly because they've made this deal. I mean, you know, the politics of migration have shifted so far in the direction of the far right that they're like, oh, fuck it. I mean, we've we've won this war essentially, and crept the borders down from Southern Europe uh, into Northern Africa, where they're of course funding these paramilitary operations and uh, funding Libyan detention camps where people are tortured and raped and killed. Sorry to get very dark very early in the podcast, but you know, 
the success of the Fortress Europe agenda has really been uh, remarkable and, and, and overwhelming to more than anyone could have expected mm. um, in the in the mind meld of the technocratic center and the populist right. Well, because mm. the, I think you like what I always think think about when I look at a a system is the system a system's purpose is what it does. So what does mm. what is the what do you, what to your mind is the purpose of the European Union if it has accommodated the priorities of the far right so much. I think it's really helpful to understand the EU as a disciplinary institution. That's its job. Mm. Its job is not necessarily positive integration, namely putting the pieces together in a way that makes mm. the, the sum greater than, than, or whatever, makes the whole greater than some of its parts. It's about discipline. So it's about negative integration, right? You want to put up labor protections, I slap your hand down and say, you can't have labor protections. You want to raise tariffs, I slap you down and you say, you can't have tariffs. And I say, that's hot. <laughs> yeah, there's a, sense, there's a sort of bondage element to it, I think. Yeah. Um, and we can talk a lot about German sadomasochism uh, in terms of their economic policies. If only which, the Greeks were more kinky, they'd have enjoyed this whole process a lot more. Well, you, well there's that famous line from the, from the Dutchman who said, uh, you know, if the, the, the Greeks waste their money on women and wine. Which is why they're so profligate and why they need austerity. Uh, yeah, so there's a kind of women kink, and wine. kink shame thing that does uh, that runs through a lot of the disciplinary nature of the of the EU. But I think it's, if you understand that discipline is so central to the function of the European Union, it becomes less surprising when and how it acts. Mm-hmm. So then, it, I'm actually going to bring something forward from uh, sort of the, the notes I have planned here. What is? I mean. We've all kind of agreed that Lexit is a silly position, and you've heard us say on the podcast before that Lexit's a silly position. What is the benefit to us, realistically, of remaining in such a disciplinary institution with the people at the top who are also so nakedly corrupt, who we'll get to in a moment? Yeah, I think the point is precisely to transform it. I think you know we have to stop arguing about the scale of political economy. We're not going to deglobalize. Even if Britain were to leave the European Union, it's not like it's going to leave Europe, the continent of Europe, right? I mean, this is the this is the fundamental fact we keep butting up against. Well, hang on a fucking minute, sunshine. I think you'll find you're talking Britain down. <laughs> <laughs> we can put an outboard motor. My cousin has a dealership. <laughs> but you know what? What we want to see is, of course, a confrontation with those institutions, right? But you can only change them by confronting them. And so when it comes to the, the Lexit case... You know, we can talk a lot, and I'm sure you have talked on this, this show a lot with, with Tom and, and, and others about the kind of fantasy world of a Lexit that actually can enshrine some of those left principles outside the European Union. But mostly the priority is to say, okay, look, we know we're going to have to put the pieces together. These countries are going to have to work together to solve international problems because you have to meet the scale of the problem, be it climate, finance, whatever, with the scale of the solution. Mm. And the only way you're going to do that is by confronting those institutions at the international level. I think Lexit to me reeks of this kind of peekaboo politics where it's sort of like if we protect, if we don't look at the European Union, we pretend it's not there. Mm. And, you know, it's sort of like, oh, if we don't talk about it, then it's not an issue. But it's a huge thing that is going to have to be confronted one way or another. Because in Mm. addition to there being far right governments that are being accommodated by the EU, such as, uh, you know, um, such as Orban, or when he was sort of more prominent in that position, Salvini... Um, I would say, uh, to quote George W. Bush, don't forget Poland. Yeah, because they're extremely right wing. Yeah, the the law and justice isn't it the law and justice party in Poland? But but it's it's better if you pronounce them by their English uh, acronym, which is PISS. Yeah, isn't I just it's 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 very funny that um that it's like they they and um Erdogan are like yes justice yeah and development law and justice don't forget Netanyahu as well yes yeah everyone the anti semites um so any case. Uh, what about the, uh, there are also, like, there are some leftist governments that are, are existing in Europe as well. I'm thinking mostly of the uh, new government that's arisen in Spain. And Portugal as well, it, yeah. And, and in Portugal, indeed. That Iberia is sort of this beacon of, of, of hope. Yeah, and it ranges about how you look at that. I mean, I think on sunnier days, we think, well, you know, within even within the constraints of the European Union's ridiculous sort of fiscal straitjackets, it's possible to do good things for, for poor and vulnerable communities. On the other hand, well, on my more... You know, radical moments or many people in, in, in the democracy in Europe movement where, that formerly employs me would say, you know, this is nonsense. The, the, these people are dodging a necessary confrontation. And it's the obligation of these left leaning in the case of Spain or properly leftist in the case of Portugal's uh, governments to to break the rules, break the fiscal rules and invite a confrontation with the Troika and say, you know, let's fight about this. Because if you're going to play by those rules and be passive, like the new Italian government, which is ostensibly center left, then essentially you're giving a green light 
to the kings and queens in Brussels to con- continue to operate as kind of monarchic, monarchic disciplinary authorities. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. it's uh, the thing. The other the thing is right. Like the the rules of Europe are really, 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 really there to be broken. I mean, so I this is something I know. <laughs> the motto of the European Union. <laughs> no, uh, effectively, yeah, that's how. Because how else do you get? Um, like national states that are concerned with preserving sovereignty into a body that is supposedly going to constrain their sovereignty is you say, well, the rules are in many cases suggestion. And I, I'm thinking in this case about, um, what was it? The, uh, the uh, uh, stability and growth mechanism yeah. in the early 2000s. When oh, the, roots of the, the roots of the euro crisis, the fact that there could be no fiscal transfers between countries, but also that none of the... Um, quite tight borrowing rules were credible, therefore making the euro a sort of contradictory and failed currency like ahead of time, were the fact that the borrowing rules were broken immediately by France and Germany, and then no penalty was ever enforced, meaning that the, uh, the concept of the euro became incoherent from the start because the European Union could not actually enforce those rules. Yeah. So it's up to the left to l- look at the ways in which the sort of like liberal, centrist, center-right, Christian, democratic, whatever, governments of the late 1990s and early 2000s in France and Germany have flouted those rules to advance their domestic agendas. It's just the problem is those agendas sucked. Yeah. I think Mm. this is what I mean by the surreality. Like, it's such raw politics. But if you go to Brussels, uh, and fuck, I pray you do not have to suffer the fate of going to Brussels as I have to tomorrow, and you go to the institutions, it's like, what? Politics? Like, we're not political here. You know, we just... So, find solutions and they're probably the best case mm. to illustrate this kind of really they Lib Dems. odd yeah in many ways i mean there's a reason why the lib dems are the most are the keenest to cancel brexit because it's a non it's a non-politics essentially <laughs> das ist ein skills wallet <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say love very apolitically going to my job at the commission for the preservation of the european way of life oh, a thing God, that exists yes. but they, uh, were, they were so scandalized by i mean the very the very notion that a european way of life could be somehow political in some way was was scandalizing to them as well what this blackface i'm wearing is political yeah exactly no but the best i think the best (laughs) it's just a christmas tradition (laughs) the best example of this and i think the most relevant one for right now for your listeners is like okay so so you've got this green new deal concept that's becoming very mimetic and traveling everywhere and everyone's talking about the same Mm -hmm. notion right so what happens in brussels they take the green new deal idea and they repackage it and what do they do they call it a green deal which of, Green old deal, which of course you can like call. I've had many meetings where they're like, no, 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 it's just a translation issue. You know, we're not going to just take green, the new deal has no resonance here. Mm. But we think it's something quite much more sinister insofar as like, OK, what happens when you excise the new deal part of the green new deal? Right? You take out the Rooseveltian premise of actually investing mm. in Europe, investing in communities making sure that you know there's, a, in, there's necessary money for infrastructure, industry, agriculture, health, habitat, whatever. When you take that out, it just becomes such familiar kind of Brussels speak, like a green deal. And green, of course, green deal of home. And it's, such, yeah. it's so classic European Commission. You know, they're kind of greenwashing this austerian status quo and then looking out into the world. You know, you watch for this in the COP negotiations in Madrid next week, going to you know, COP and saying, we are the champions of the climate uh, movement or the climate mm-hmm. agenda. But it's, um, it's just sort of repackaged older you know, pro-privatization, pro-liberalization, pro-austerian uh, policies under the guise of this Green Deal. I mean, we talk also about the uh, the similarities between uh, the European committed, the European technocrats, the Eurocrats, the kings and queens, the sort of the startup Habsburgs of Brussels. You know, and you can see the similarities as well with the Lib Dem manifesto, who's which may and, and their because their main um, policy around fighting climate change is largely to uh, invest in startups. Uh, they they assume it's like well we have to if we want the climate change to be fought, we have to make it so that there's an attractive environment for business to invest and for startups to grow sort of infinitely profitable. Mm. So we can assume that they will invent some kind of desalinator that you know will solve all the problems. It's exactly extremely right. Simpsons voice. No startup has ever been bad for the environment. So what are some of the specific uh, proposals of this terrible uh, green old deal? This green. We're going green for the 1990s in 2019. So the crucial mechanism that would help you understand what exactly this green deal is, is what they're promising to do is, okay, what what the headline policy says is 110 billion euros every year invested in ecological transition. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's 1.1 trillion over 10 years. Now, actually what they're doing is they're promising 110 billion of unlocked private finance. So what they're doing no. is they're, they're using Fuck the European me. Investment Bank to unlock private investment by essentially 
making loan guarantees and de-risking investments for private investors. Holy shit. What they've done is they've taken stopping the death of the human species entirely and they've turned it into a bubble. Right. It's a classic thing. So it's sort of socializing, socializing the risks uh, and privatizing the gains from the green transition, which is mm. fairly, fairly classic. But uh, it, for, for the European Union, you know, so it's just very, it runs it runs so counter to the premise of the Green New Deal as all of us understand it, which is muscular public investment for public ownership to guarantee decent jobs, all the kind of stuff that we understand mm. in its incarnation in the United States or in Britain. But all they're of taking that good it, shit. All the good shit that we associate with... Um, with AOC and with uh, with the Labour Party or the Green Party's uh, plans plans here at West at Westminster, so they've taken that idea and they've inverted it while co-opting the language uh, and uh, delivered this plan that really does not stand to benefit Europe citizens at all. It's really amazing this shit to me, like the extent to which the kind of like the neoliberal politicians and even the European ones who I always credited with like being a little bit more sane than the British ones, because at least like there's a bit more of a tradition of slightly more left wing politics in like France and Germany and whatever. They they really they're so determined that like no state should profit from any investment. Like they just they're so desperate for like wind farms to be privately owned and like it's like but they're profitable. Why wouldn't you want the government to they will make money? for the like it just doesn't even make sense on their own principles like do you not want if you had more money you could reduce taxes if you wanted to like, I don't I don't even understand it from their own principles we're back to German sadomasochism I mean they just love yeah. Yeah. the Germans just really hate the idea of debt even if you're making an investment that's obviously going to have huge returns um, mm. because any of these investments it's just low hanging fruit in the green transition not to get too deep in the weeds of, uh, of the sort of economics here no please do but but uh, the Germans are so averse to the idea of public spending. I mean, they just refuse to let go of the, of the grip of this austerian notion, mm. even as the Germans go into recession, even as German manufacturing plummets, even as the Eurozone basically tips into negative growth. Mm. They're just unprepared to say, OK, it's time to spend because they just love ripping themselves apart. I mean, it's a deeply, it's a suicidal economic policy. So as the Eurozone tips into negative growth and as the European Union has essentially announced near unlimited fiscal firepower to guarantee um, a, any green themed private investment, uh, what can we expect in terms of like the extent to which this will actually work and the extent to which this will just become an enormous bubble that blows up in what, two years? Yeah, I wonder. I mean, all this remains to be seen. A lot of the substance of this policy remains to be seen. The European Commission just took its seat on Sunday and they've promised to deliver in the first 100 days. So I've seen a leaked memo of what their plans are, but it's still quite vague. Um, You know, it was also leaked by Gibbo. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The memo was actually, it was tattooed on the side of a dick. I get another squatty dare from 2017 that was just somehow incredibly prescient. It's like, uh, yeah, they said that uh, Jean Claude Juncker's passed away. You're going to need to fit in your black kit bag. You're going to need 14 packs for Stroop waffles. So, sorry, carry on. No, no, no. no. I mean, I was saying, uh, yeah, so they've promised to decarbonize by 2050, Mm -hmm. which is supposedly this great. Radical tri- triumph because they're going to be the first carbon neutral like continent. Twenty fifty, there's going to be what, like five people left alive? Exactly. So that's a, mm. that's that's what we. But they'll be very rich people. They will be yeah. rich people. They'll be super rich. And to be fair, we will have decarbonized because there will be no mm. one left. Yeah. yeah, and actually, people are made of carbon. So the more people that die, the more you decarbonize the economy. So I think, and of course, it's coupled with these like really <laughs> bad, you know, anti environmental policies at the nation state level. So mm. the classic case is there's a new gov- right-wing government in Greece who are very pro-fracking, you know, selling off their oil fields, selling off offshore drills to Exxon and Shell and whatever. Mm. And of course, you know, one spill in Greece in the Aegean Sea just destroys the tourism industry, which destroys, you know, 25% of the economy. And, and there you go. We're back mm. to the 2015 again. Mm. So he's just like, they just really can't get enough of the self-destruction. Um, and then of mm. course, China comes to town and they freak out and they're like, how dare you talk to Xi Jinping? And they're like, well, come on, you're not giving us anything here. Throw us a goddamn bone. So the the same policies that we talked a lot about in 2015, this kind of um, self-flagellatory economic policy that refuses to deliver on any investment for the European member states continues to be a fundamental core of their of their policy thinking. Well, it seems they're, they're very willing to intervene um, when you want to, say, raise your minimum wage, but they're very unwilling to intervene when you want to frack an entire country. Yeah, that's right. 
and we'll see. So I don't know where where that 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 part will go. <laughs> and that's where Silvio Berlusconi comes in. <laughs> I was going to say they uh, no, they're um, the, the 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 Greeks have remembered that the Oracle at Delphi used to get high off of natural gas, so they're fracking it. That's right. Mm. They're going to frack the Oracle at Delphi. Um, but you also mentioned that a new uh, European Commission is has taken their seats. I'm I'm sure these are going to be some really excellent politicians who will be able to like control these problems with the institution and steer it towards a better future, right? What's amazing about the current European Commission, actually, it's just true about European politics in general, is just the the ability to fail upwards almost knows no bounds. So mm-hmm. let's just walk through a few of the characters who are currently leading the European Union. The yep. first is our is the Queen, mm-hmm. President Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the European Commission who has had a, just a scandal-ridden career in German politics mm. uh, and was last the defense minister of Germany under investigation for corruption, for handing out contracts to, to private contacts. So that's mm. President von der Leyen. Then we go to, to President Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank, who was not just under investigation, but was convicted of fraud during her time as managing director of the IMF. So we've got a convict now running the, running, running the ECB. Holy shit. And then the best one, the, the cherry on top, by the way, this is three. We're at, we're at, we're at two or four of the top posts. The, oh, the, no. the third or four is Josep Borrell, who's the high rep for the European Union, which means you know, he's the face of Europe's foreign policy. And he was formerly the president of the European University Institute, the, the EU's university uh, in, in Fiesole mm-hmm. in Italy, um, forced to resign because it came to light that he was secretly accepting 300,000 euros a year from a Spanish energy company without telling the university and quietly advancing an energy policy program at the university. Oh, so he's Hunter Biden. Exactly. So we've got yeah. Hunter Biden running foreign policy for the European Union and two, uh, w- one convict and one future convict so at have, the top posts. We have, what, Hunter Biden, then what, like Skylar White, and then Michelle Bachman. My question is, do we have a Wyatt Coke? Oh my, uh, I could find you one if we went down the list. Okay. Like uh, the, no, there is almost some certain- guy is like a big fat guy with his own line of lederhosen or some shit. There like, is almost certainly some like Habsburg MEP from Austria who is exactly that, who just like sort of inherited a network of political patronage somewhere in like um in like Tyrolia, and now is just like just machine like elected in every year to take his salary, and then just sits there sort of fatly thumbing his lederhosen. Yeah, I have my own line of kids to help you build a basement in your own house. I knew I shouldn't have brought up Austria. (laughs) The European Parliament is such a weird place. I mean, you really have to go and see it. First of all, these guys are so handsomely paid. I mean, it's such a lucrative position to be a European parliamentarian. But they're, you know, most of the time they're just spinning, spinning wheels, um, feeling like they have a lot of influence. It's just a lot of meetings, basically. Mm. But uh, Mm. you're, you're really raking it in. So I highly recommend your listeners that they get involved. Yeah, you know, run for member of European Parliament, get a nice place in Brussels. There's like ten people staff. vote in those elections. Like you will probably get elected. Yeah, I don't think it's very mm. hard. So of course, the the best are the, the Brexit Party MEPs who just like do not give a fuck, um, but off, but I like love to post being like it's ridiculous that I have a private car to take me to the airport, but are obviously like oh, no. laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I'm so taking it. That's <laughs> totally the um. That's the version of the of the journalists who are just who are like oh you on on like a level results day who are like you know oxbridge doesn't mean everything i mean i went there but anyone else could uh, do make their life um yeah so then as opposed to the ones who are like oh these lovely girls look at them so happy to receive their result look how look how lovely they are oh so so talented on so many levels. We are not going to say who Milo is referring to. <laughs> no. I mean, I'm referring to like more yes, than one person like with the, that. The that entire like, time's yeah, mass exactly, tech. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. So, so back to this, right? Like there is, we often speak about, and you often hear about mostly from secessionist or, or leave forces throughout Europe about the European democratic deficit. But the fact that the, that this is ruled by people who are supposedly technocrats. Think about technocrat. It means ruled by the best and most skilled to sort of manage a machine to do mm. a purpose, to do make sure do that purpose well outside the interference of democratic politics. All but in a, a minimal four-bar format. But a but a ro- <laughs> but a robust democratic <laughs> politics would have got would have like gotten rid of these people who are literally criminals yeah. from being in ex- very, very tight control of what states are allowed to imagine as the limits of the possible. I mean, no one even knows who they are. I mean, that's the real, the real crazy thing mm. is like these people are so powerful, they manage so much money. The money they're throwing around is crazy. But first of all, most 90% of European Europeans couldn't tell you who any of the people I just named are. I mean, even your listeners, after me telling them just now, mm. I bet you couldn't even repeat back those names because it's so boring. But then you go to Brussels and it's like, 
the the Brussels bubble, man, it is thickly walled. Like it really does feel they they feel like they're atlas holding the continent on their shoulders and really managing all the problems and they feel the weight of that responsibility mm. like can you not see that we're doing so much good for you do you think this might be some amazing dutch long game of building up a tradition of just having absolutely ridiculous 14 syllable names so that when they do get into corrupt positions of power no one can fucking remember <laughs> who they are was, and I, tell them apart was, from each other i was gonna say this like I read like a few articles coming into this coming into this episode and like I I can't remember any of the names not because like I'm disinterested but just because like I can't pronounce any of them. <laughs> I always uh, love the idea that there's some some people because of a big political event get really into the politics of a certain country. You'll notice how many people in America for example after the 2017 GE who don't live here and may not have spent time here still have become very interested in British politics specifically because of the Labour Party, but you would imagine there might have been a comparable thing with people after Brexit being interested in the European Parliament and yet it doesn't seem to happen because it's just so fucking inscrutable <laughs> and so just like no, nothing ever happens. My honorable friend uh Honkflun van Honkball. <laughs> <laughs> was a period of time when like organ was really popular and like i knew people when i was at, i was in university at the time but i knew people who like knew every single character in organ um and they were all like lib dems they were all just like people who would actually know the names of like meps and stuff uh mm. yeah like but uh, that's the only kind of thing that I can liken it to. Like, there, there needs to be so you know, you need... And m- maybe that was, like, the good thing about Borgen. Like, at least, for all its flaws, at least it kind of, like, at least touched on some of the corruption that happens in, you know, in, um, like, European Parliament settings. Mm. Like, weeaboos, but for the EU, the people I mean, basically, need. yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, but, yeah, pretty much, yeah. So if you look at the... If you, first of all, they don't, they don't want you to know their names. So this is... Uh, they're succeeding if they can't... Damn, they're so <laughs> humble, you know? Yeah. It's not about me. It's about the bigger project that I'm part of. Not me, it's us, you know? Yeah, yeah. When, it's about the theft. When von der Leyen wins, we all win, I think, is, was the, her <laughs> motto for the presidency. All, all, the, but, um, all, the, Euro- all the European, uh, all the European uh, parliament, uh, parliamentarians involved in corruptions like choose long names because they're actually acronyms. And when you put them... And when you kind of rearrange them, it says, I am doing crimes. It's an acrostic poem. <laughs> There's so much crime, though. I mean, you know, the New York Times has a, this investigation a couple of weeks ago about like the extent to which the common agricultural policy of the European Union was, oh, was being abused by yeah. Orban to I was like get about in Hungary, yeah, millions just, and millions of euros into his pockets. Yeah, basically just using the power of the state to buy up small farmers' land and use common agricultural policy funds to basically just enrich in his friends. So what's amazing about grants. what's amazing mm-hmm. about that is like, okay, so we know that's a fact, right? We know for a fact that the extent and the depth of corruption vis-a-vis European funds going into Hungary. So let's go back to the Green Deal. Ursula von der Leyen is like, again, co-opting the language of the Green New Deal. She's like, okay, I'm gonna promise a just transition. I want this to be a just transition for all. The same language we would use here in Britain or in the United States. And uh, what is that consistent? Consistent making a just transition fund, maybe 15 billion euros, essentially just throwing cash at Eastern Europe, right? Throwing cash at Poland, throwing cash at Orban so that the European Council, no one vetoes the plan, you know, no one vetoes any of these policies as they go through. And you're like, Jesus, this, you know, this is just a racket. You're basically just putting, you're agreeing to put money directly into an autocrat's pockets in order to get your, again, extra money for private investors across Europe pass through uh, the European institutions. So, I mean, the rot just runs deep. So mm. before we go into the, uh, into the reading, which is just, it's, it's really, f- uh, unlike this, this section, the reading is just really funny and pointless and meaningless. And it's almost quite sort of whimsical. I want to ask, right, what can it mean now that we, we understand like the rot here, we understand the institutional dysfunction and the way with, that it's sort of built to accommodate the different right-wing tendencies of Europe to get them to cooperate to invest in startups essentially um what does it mean how can we then revolt what kind of rule breaking can a theoretical corbyn government or the government of portugal how can we work together to you know be exist in this institution that we do have to stay in because it does protect us from certain elements of global neoliberalism if not local neoliberalism what do we have to do to make it worth staying in? Yeah, I think the crucial thing. So let's back way up from the from the local question of the, of, the, of Europe and its environs. You know, I think there's a real appetite in the United States and in Canada, whatever. I mean, on the left in general, for a kind of internationalism, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly the Labour Party here 
speaks a big game about internationalism, et cetera, and, and, and people love, love to praise Bernie for being an internationalist. But so much of that internationalism is just, is just symbolism, it's just symbolic internationalism. Tweeting shit like, you know, mm. I stand with the people of Brazil in the fight against Bolsonaro. Or, you know... Bol- and in the Bol- fight against bandits. Bolivia was a coup. I mean, think about how many brownie points accrued to Bernie for just saying Bolivia was a coup on Twitter. You know, so we, mm. we have these forms of solidarity that are so symbolic and they're not actually substantive. And I think the way I, th- you know, you've got to put the, the European Union in context of a broader question of how do we make internationalism more institutional? So sure, we don't like the IMF, we don't like the World Bank, we don't like any of these institutions of global governance mm-hmm. that we know have been major motors of privatization and global neoliberalism, as you said. But we have to start activating our progressive imagination about what are the other institutions that can replace them. You know, either we reform these things or we we create new ones, but we have to start thinking about how we're going to reconfigure or reimagine the international institutional architecture to accommodate progressive ends. So when I think about Remain in Revolt, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's implausible. I personally think that the Corbyn government should, of course, stay in the European Union for the reasons you already outlined and just go to war with the institutions, break the treaties, f- you know, flip the bird to the EU and say, take me to court, you know, mm. and actually lead by example within the institutions to say, you know, we're not going to take this lying down. And if you want to actually start this war, then then, then we'll do it. I, this is where I don't think the, 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 you know, Britain to Greek analogy where it really falls flat because Greece mm. really didn't have the bargaining power. I mean, we can yeah. spend all day talking about what happened in 2015, <laughs> but, you know, Britain does have the ability to actually lead that charge and be a, yeah. a kind of light to other forces in Europe. But in general, we can't, let our leaders get away with saying, oh, we're internationalists because we are just, maybe we're against war. I mean, it's a crucial component of internationalism. We love tacos, you know, they're right. great. But I think we get away, I mean, a lot of the stuff around diversity and inclusion of voices from the global south, mm-hmm. it's just insufficient as a program, as an agenda of internationalism. Yeah. I think the, 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 the conversation around Brexit is illustrative insofar as, you know, it's fine to leave something if you, if you feel like, Okay, there are there are better ways to accommodate our goals outside of that framework, but you need to have an answer for mm. how you're going to affect the institution of global governance. Because again, we go back to the peekaboo politics. If you don't have an answer, then those wheels just keep turning. Then you mm. are at the mercy of the institutions that you tried to avoid in the first place. Well, and I think in that way, like the Lexit people really lack both a knowledge of history and imagination in the sense that like that to say that like the EU is a right wing institution, like, well, fine, but also like it ignores the fact that the UK has like deliberately campaigned to make it as right wing as possible for the last 30 years. And we've been quite successful and influential in doing so. So imagine what we could do if we like did the good shit instead. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean that's also the essence of internationalism, right? It's like linking up with, with with your friends, your comrades, whatever, in other countries and, and leading the same fight. And I just feel like, like I said before, we've, we've really just got to stop pretending like there's a question about scale going on. You mm. know, it's it, we're now in competing visions of globalization. Which globalization do we want? We're not going back to a different kind of world that's mm. that's fundamentally more national in, 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 scape, in scope or scale. So They'll never know. reopen the racism mine. <laughs> But you know, no, I think it's true. They won't. No, because they, we are in a world in which that kind of economy doesn't matter, and we need to. We need to. There are institutions that we can't really effectively take control mm. of because either they're based in Washington, or they are so fantastically sort of not democratically accountable, like like the WTO, that we can't really touch them. Yeah. Whereas the the EU, as sort of flawed as it is, is an institution that has vague democratic accountability i mean the commission is appointed by the by the by the by the by the council and the council is essentially an indirectly democratically elected body yeah i mean britain has, and it can be negotiated totally with. i mean britain, britain has veto power i mean you know there are ways to influence the politics of the european union just at a basic fundamental level that even yeah. someone like david cameron exercise and of course we mentioned the sort of role of tony blair in the formation of of the, of the existing uh, architecture of the european <laughs> union but you know i think the broader point here is just about this reactivation of the of mm. the imagination. Like, it's a, a Corbyn government, inshallah, could unilaterally set up a, a new global fund, an international community wealth building corporation or whatever, to like fund exactly the projects around anchor institutions and local community wealth building that we want to see here in Britain. And it's only for this strange reason that we've kind of abdicated and given over the global sphere 
to the technocrats and said, look, we're so disgusted with these institutions that we want nothing to do with them. And that's just not a strategy for beating them. And mm-hmm. of course, Brexit has illustrated so so well that once you leave, you don't become more powerful in, your, in terms of your bargaining position vis-a-vis those other institutions. No, then you, then you get into an excellent trading relationship with the US where they're like, oh, you want to trade with the US? How about you sell us all your shit? Indeed. Um, so I think that's... Uh- I think that's as good a good and actually relatively positive note to leave that segment on. You know, it's um, the EU. It sucks that we all have to defend it, but we do all have to defend it so we can stay in it and make it not suck. Mm. Um, if, if <laughs> Deeply wanted... inspiring stuff here. <laughs> Look, this this is this is this is going out to listeners of a leftist podcast. <laughs> yeah, sure, there's I mean, no but, one but on but the, the fence. Point to be made about that is think about the Labour Party in 2006 versus what it is now. Like, there's a certain degree to which you know the entryism is going to be harder on this kind of scale, but it is possible if you actually have the will at like a national level to to push the limits. I mean. Labor's manifesto. If imagine going back in time to 2006, uh, I mean, I was I was 22. You were probably like 14. But imagine going back to your to the people you know who've been involved in British politics since then. I mean, like this is what's going to be on the yeah. manifesto compared to like war and austerity and racism. But we smile. Yeah, I mean, especially for a country like Britain, which is one of arguably the two biggest players in the EU. Like, it's not you know we're not talking about fucking Liechtenstein here. Yeah, no, indeed. But. I would like to uh, move us on slightly to a very fun article that Nate has slightly prefigured. What if we went back in time and showed the manifesto to someone from 2006, but the, then they said, puh, awful, terrible, we hate everything that's here, and I hope something will change it. And, well, And that person was the lead singer of the Arctic Monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I bet they're a Lib Dem. Um, <laughs> prove me wrong, children. I mean, cold, uh, cold, cold player, right? They they came out. Oh, that just- surprised yeah. nobody. Wait, hold on. Is yeah. that a tr- is that true? Or yes, you just Cole, Cole play yeah, is voting Lib Dem. Chris Martin said he's going to vote Lib Dem. I have a I have more faith in uh, Alex Turner than that. I reckon I reckon Alex Turner might be a comrade. I've got. Yeah. A- <laughs> no, uh, I'm. He's I'm, a Sheffield boy. Yeah. Okay. I'm willing to bet that uh, Alex Turner jury's out. But anyone who didn't see that Chris Martin would have voted Lib Dem from like. The last decade is a complete rube, okay, well, and you deserve about, your austerity. What about Liam Gallagher? Does anyone know how Liam Gallagher is going to vote? I don't think Liam Gallagher votes. I think Dude. he just headbutts people until he feels better. <laughs> so Labour, you're saying he's going to vote? Yeah. <laughs> Liam Gallagher like, but casts his vote in his own blood. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he'll, so, he'll vote Labour, but accidentally. He'll, he'll, yeah, he'll vote Labour, yeah. but accidentally. Like he won't actually realize. He only, what he's he doing. only votes Labour in the sense that he's got a proxy ballot to vote for John McDonnell, mm. the one person who matches yeah. his politics. Yeah, he, see, he sees one picture of Jeremy Corbyn in a, in a bucket hat, and he's like. Yeah, it's fucking all right, that. Yeah, I love that. Um, a very good northern impression from Milo. Liam um, Gallagher, there you go. I can do them all. Yeah, I can so, do them all, baby. Th- no, this is the Wait title. Wait till my Sanders comes out. This is the title of this of this article. Um, and this was written last week, not in like 2015. Okay, I'm bracing myself. New center left can rise from labor's ashes by Matthew Paris. Uh, Where is this published? Uh, Telegraph. My second oh, favorite God, Matthew after Matthew the Dank Owner. So here's the thing. This was written, just for context, this was written two days before Labour then rose between like, what, five to six points in most polls to within like a six point lead of the Tories. To be fair, the six point was the the, the outlier, but yes. the, the, the recent ones have come out today and it's between seven and nine. So basically yeah. they've moved like between five and seven points in 10 days. I just feel like how... This is a pattern that we're seeing in the U.S. as well. Just like the left left parties getting advice from right wing pundits. I just yeah. don't understand where they find the nerve. Yeah, it's like, but at mm. least put on a disc. Like we worked hard to do entryism, and you're just not <laughs> <Yeah>. trying. <laughs> like that, like that poll of um about how like all all the Democrats in Idaho or some fucking shit would all vote for Pete Buttigieg. It turned out to be a poll that was like mostly of Republicans. <laughs> 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 it was like, yeah, fucking great yeah. polling, guys. Moderate Republicans are, as far as these people are concerned, the only electorate that matters to the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, no, they, they envision a one-party system, kind of technocratic <laughs> rule, where they can just like have people with impossible-to-pronounce names rule over them. Yeah, Buttigieg would make an amazing European it's, commission no, guy. It's, it's just that in the US, the people with impossible-to-pronounce names are spelled like Kaylee with eight Gs and four Ys. But Whereas in it- Europe, it's like, you know, yeah... Honk Vander Hawk Slice, but it's with four J's. <laughs> the day after the election, amid Tory triumph and Labour collapse, how despondently may Liberal Democrats raise a wan toast to the news that at least they live to fight another day? One more heave is supposed to be an exhortation, but can so easily feel like a defeat. 
but sometimes it's useful to start by asking not what might come, but what can't continue. I'm close to concluding, you know, a telegraph journalist, <laughs> that mm. labor can't continue like this. There's a hunger for a moderate center-left force in our politics. Oh, is there? Yeah. Fucking is there? <laughs> yeah. We can't go on together yeah, with suspicious journalists. We are we are hungry for center... You know how all those parties, those center-left parties in Europe, um, they all got pesocified, which means they all are in power now. Yeah, they're all soaring. Soaring also, in, in the polls. Mm. Also, like... We've had this. We've had like more than one centrist party like develop in the UK in the past couple of years, and none of them have polled above two percent. And that two percent happened on the week they launched. Treading the line because racism's fine, and (laughs) I'm hungry for Lib Dems. Oh, that's fun. Is that Duran Duran's "Hungry for the Wolf"? Hungry hungry for Lib Dems. Excellent. Yeah, really like Um, that. This piece has been written every year since. It could, 2000, be, whatever. it could be written by an AI at this point. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. like these people, like they're really like, journalists writing a new center left force would reinvigorate politics are really mm-hmm. a threat of oh, automation. You mean like Change UK, a fucking brilliant idea that worked really yeah. well. No, they're, they're in all going to lose their seats except for the ones who defected the Lib Dems. Like, surely that's instructive in some capacity. No, mm-hmm. Nate, they're in government now. They're they're yeah. in the, they're in government of the hearts of columnists up and down the country because that two percent is all columnists. Someone actually reposted. Do you remember the the picture of Change UK having oh, the, Nando's? the cheeky Nando's? The yeah, cheeky yeah. Nando's that changed someone, politics. Someone forever. reposted that photo today and was like, "This might be the most irrelevant photo in political history." <laughs> and I was like, "No, it's actually kind of funnier than that because that photo reminds me of like the end of the end of Band of Brothers when they're all playing baseball and it zooms in on them and says what they did later and then like all the ones who died like fade from view and it's kind of like they're just all just disappearing from the picture and like Change UK. UK is like just gapes. <laughs> like, he's not the only person left. So, uh, to adapt a uh, to adapt the apocryphal advice given to a man who asked for directions in Ireland, if you want to build a humane, moderate, credible force in British politics, you'd better not start from the Labour Party. What? Well, that's a really weird thing to say if you're giving someone directions in Ireland. Yeah, we, <laughs> so what, the, what the fuck phrase is he adapt? Like, is he just invented a phrase? Uh, that there is a, there is an old there's an old joke about like someone asking for directions in Ireland and then someone says like. Uh, uh, well, I wouldn't start from here. Okay, that's the well, that's we the joke. Yeah. Thank you for that. That was yeah. really, that is instructive. Yeah. What do we know? Just what do we know about this this guy? Do we know what do we do? We know his his bio. Um. I I hold up. Let's let's. Doesn't he write this. for the Spectator as well? Matthew uh, Paris, you said yeah. He yeah. Writes, well, he like, was used to be. He, like, he writes like racist columns, like anti-racist right. columns and stuff. Like there was one I can't remember, but it was like a few weeks. So what was really weird was that I think. A few months ago, he had written this column, which in the Times, everyone kind of thought was like, oh, Matthew Paris is so brave because he used to be like a conservative MP. Um, and he was kind of considered to be one of the more like reasonable conservative MPs. He spoke out against like Boris Johnson and everything on like some elements. But then like the following week after he did like an anti-Boris, like a, a column that like lightly criticized Boris, he wrote another one about like Muslims who don't integrate in the UK. Um yeah, and it was just like just kind of bizarre. But this is—he's done this like more than once. Um, so in many ways, it's like a true centrist in like a lot of a lot of respects. Yeah, in as much as yeah, I, I'm just seeing also he like praises like Rupert Murdoch as one of the best forces in politics in the last sort of what fifty years. So yeah, oh, if you want to build a humane, moderate, incredible force in British politics, you'd better not start from the Labour Party. You'd better start from the guy whose papers got like repeatedly criminally investigated for either like smearing the Hillsborough victims or phone hacking or whatever shit. I just don't understand what so what could bring me to write an advice column for the Tories. I mean it's just such an odd question to think about why these consistently both in the US and here these right-wing commentators are motivated to to dole out advice to the left. I don't it's such a strange motivation. Well, I think it's like the I think the well, a lot of it also is like it's mostly the cent, like the alleged center right that does this, mm-hmm. um, just as the alleged center left loves to loves to eulogize for the mythical reasonable Republican. The center right loves to sort of give prodding advice of you know we wouldn't vote for you if you had Tony Blair, but you know maybe some other people would. Um, so he goes on. This is a party whose origins lie <laughs> in collective labor. Labor's very taproot was late 19th century trade union movement. The nascent party did not decide to lend its support to trade unionism. Trade unionism created the party as its political and parliamentary institute instrument, rather. 
Awesome. Okay. Cool. Good. Yeah. 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 That sounds fucking that whips. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm. But no, it's like the whole. And also, it's like it's as Matthew Paris just forgotten what happened to the trade union movement in the UK in the 1980s. Like, Wait, was that supposed to be denigrating? Was that supposed to be de- what, what, what was it? What points he making with that paragraph? Uh, yeah, it's supposed to be denigrating. It's like remember, oh, labor right, is right. the party of labor unions. Right. <laughs> oh just, no. Uh, to him, I never would have figured that out from the name. Fuck. He carries on. Labor parliamentarians tend to regard themselves as the political expression of the national membership of the trade unions. You know, like how Tony Blair did that. Mm. Or like how, like, ch- what he was a Labour MP, Chuck Romana did that. Or like Gavin Shuker. I love or, that, like, to like, him, Tom every Labour MP is like Dennis Skinner. Yeah. Because <clears throat> even, like, a lot of the Corbynite MPs aren't, like, very trade union y necessarily. A lot of them have, like, other focuses. Like, it's just, it's weird. Well, like, even like, if you hate trade unions, it's, like, a weird accusation to level. Yeah, it's, it's one of these things where it's like, A, you're wrong, you're wrong twice. Like, yeah. you're, you're, A, you're fuck you, but B, you're also just deeply inaccurate. <laughs> Well, it's because, look, David, you say, like, what, who are they writing this for? Like, this kind of column is read by two people. It's read by people who are permanently red and mad at the left. And it's also read by landlords. Landlords. It's read read by Guardian columnists and Guardian commentators in their comment section and no one else. And also Mm. podcasters. Well, yeah, but but we're just content hogs. We need this. We're keeping Matthew Paris in business. (laughs) Indeed. Um, for the Tories, the national membership is just kind of a glorified fan club and fundraising machine. Mm. But national memberships are granted considerable powers in the selection of their leaders. But if Labour chosen retained its leaders on the basis of Tory rules, Jeremy Corbyn's name would never have gone forward to the membership. And even if it had, he would have been removed by now. May I quote the great and friend of the show, Ahir Shah, uh, who in his in this year's Edinburgh show said, the Tory party membership who have an average age of ghost. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Uh, what do you say? Yes, yeah, like, yeah. But... But Corbyn's incredibly popular among membership, Matthew Paris. You're just making this up. But yeah. They shouldn't be allowed to choose. That's what he's trying to say. Mm. No, he's saying that he thinks that the Labour member, if the Labour, because the, the Tory membership is much more, has a much more sort of direct uh, ability to vote on their, um, on the leader. Whereas Labour membership, mm. like they're all, the it, trade unions have input, yeah. but he's just totally forgotten that the vast majority of the Labour membership also uh, supports Corbyn. And here's the, his incredible next paragraph. And this is how you can tell, by the way, that center-left politicians are completely useless because the reason that people like Matthew Paris want them back is because they'll basically do what Matthew Paris says. Mm. He says, how else can Yvette Cooper's quiescence, Tom Watson's despair for the future after lights out, after lights out quality of Emily's Thor- Emily Thornberry's cheekiness be explained? If as a parliamentarian you feel that your party direction is forged in parliament, it gives you a certain self-confidence or either self-importance. But if you feel yourself essentially a delegate of the national membership, covert impertinence is all that's left to you. Damn, dude. The disdain that these people have for representative democracy is amazing. Mm. And I think he's, he's misrepresenting Tom Watson. Tom Watson simply wanted to focus on getting his level two gym instructor qualification. <laughs> I don't understand. Well, you know, Tom Watson, he just wants to get jacked. And I respect him for that. You know, like that's why he quit politics. I don't think there's any other reason. What was that ad he did right after he resigned? It was oh, like, yeah. oh, it was some like health yogurt or yeah. some shit like no, that. It was yes. like a ring you wear. It was like, oh, my ring right. tells me when I'm back. <laughs> Wait, he's <laughs> saving it for Jesus now? <laughs> no, I'm, sure was, I'm sure he was paid like so, a bucket of money. Yeah, like, he was to, to, to advertise a mood ring on instagram exactly. he's basically mm. sarah palin <laughs> influencer influencer tom watson i was just gonna say something that i always encounter that i love is in the guardian comment section or on twitter etc you'll always get these like you know smug tory voices who are like haha the membership vote for corbin because me and my tory mates we all joined for three pounds so we could vote because we knew he would lose and like wow you must feel really fucking smart now it's like you literally would have been able to do brexit already except for what happened in 2017 but it's the same kind of concept that they 2017 didn't happen they refused to acknowledge it and whatever happens in the general election, if things are trending the way they're looking like, it's not going to be what they predicted. And the thing that blows my mind is that they just have the memory hole. They're able to just dump that out of their brain and go back to like, if only there was a sensible center left party. It's like, th- there are two of them. There's literally the Lib Dems and Change UK. One's poll share is fucking taking. The other doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. there's if this demand was there, then why wasn't it met with fucking rapturous applause by anyone besides you and your zone two dinner party friends? I just don't fucking get it. They can't, like when fact, they have this like, computer-like ability to disregard information they don't want to compute. Do you think Matthew Paris is in Zone 2? I think my man is in Zone 1. My my man is hanging out in Zone Or he might be in like a really bougie Zone 3 place like Hampstead. I begin to think that for Labour, this will never change. Mr. Corbyn will probably resign. 
uh, but his successor will have to be pleasing the eye of the momentum-fueled party membership and the trades union funders, not those millions of center-left voters who on December 12 will have refused to give Corbyn an absolute majority. Wait, sorry, who are we taking votes from, by the way, right now? Uh, in the, the polls? motherfucking Lib Dems. Ah, they didn't. Damn. They mustn't have read Matthew Paris's column. Damn. 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 Well, they were inspired by Joe Swinson's incredible campaign skills and rapturous leadership. They were inspired. They were inspired by the way she allegedly bullseyed those squirrels. Skills, <laughs> motherfucking wallets. I mean, you know what? Milo always said British politics really comes down to bin collection days, and those those same bin collection voters hate fucking squirrels. So in a way, Joe Swinson is their perfect candidate. You're really good at reminding me of like smart things I said that I've just <laughs> forgotten because I too have the brain hole. But yeah, it's true. Everyone is just obsessed with bin collections. That's all it really is for like most people. And um, she was in front of the, doing the thing in front of the trash bag. So in a way. <laughs> She respects that. I uh, yesterday I was I was canvassing in in Chingford and I knocked on a door and this woman opened the door and I said, "Hello, my name is David. I'm with the local Labour Party." And she said, "No, sorry, I send my kids to private school." And then walked away, which was um, so yeah, bins and private education. I think. And, and the problem mm. is, the people who send their kids to private school, yes, it may look like only seven percent of the kids in the UK are in private education, but the people who pay for that private education, that's most of the electorate. So we have to pander to them. Mm, exactly. Um, you sounded like Matthew Paris here. Yeah, the, the machinery has dictated, trapped by its own scaffolding, this particular product of center-left thinking may be on its way to relegation, as was Asquith's Liberal Party after the First World War. The liberals were fatally slow to grasp the salience of the workers in the new world. And again, that's like... Nothing has changed. Yes, because <laughs> they had the vote. But that's the other thing. Like, this, every every right-wing <laughs> column will have two sentences that are right, but for the wrong reason. Like, yeah, that's yeah. true. Like the liberalism of like the of the sort of mass bourgeois like like um, uprisings of the sort of 18th and, and 19th centuries, that's sort of gone. Like there's nothing there anymore. They're just the upper class now. And like the liberals were fatally slow to grasp the salience of the workers in the new world. But the, what Paris's point is that what the old liberals are back. We're talking about the corn laws again. It's going to be mm. David Lloyd George PM forever. Oh, hell yeah. Give me the wigs back. He says, today, I believe labor is fatally slow to grasp that it isn't really about the workers any longer. Who's it about then? Which mm. workers? The only workers in Britain, <laughs> the only people who do work who are actually counted as workers are people in mines, which don't exist anymore, which yeah. means there's no more workers. Well, and the columnists, of course, in the yeah. content mines. Because it's just like, you, you can't even fucking bend over to tie your shoes in this country without encountering a situation of somebody on zero hours contracts getting paid shit wages or like dealing with housing costs because there's, it's impossibly expensive to commute to a job if you can find a higher wage like this is a universal problem throughout the country it's not just like oh labor is the party of coal miners and there's no more coal anymore so that means there's no more labor party well, I'll, I'll like, tell it's you, the laziest reductive thinking I'll tell you what I think Paris really means which is that I think Paris has basically taken the the lesson of Tony Blair which is that there are no workers anymore. We're now a nation of consumers. So everyone who works at Sports Direct is an entrepreneur. Well, it's the, the mm. idea was, right? The whole concept of, of, of the neoliberal turn in, in Blairism specifically, not in Thatcherism so much. Blairism specifically was about unlocking freedom by having people make choices in the market and that the aggregate of those choices in the market was representing the most of what everyone wants because the market's a way to get what you want. And this idea what the is the market wants is a hundred thousand dead Iraqis. And the idea is <laughs> is that if you see if you see everyone as a consumer, then you all you have to do as in politics is make sure that they have the opportunity to make their consumer choices as much as possible. And a vision of society like this is anathema to movement politics, which we everyone appears on the sort of in the center has failed to realize has come back since 2008. I think it's a controversial opinion, but I'm kind of honest. I, I respect the honesty of that sentence to say, you know, it's not, it's not about the workers. I mean, it's, it's almost as if he hasn't seen these magnificent graphs of wage stagnation since the 70s while productivity keeps rising and, and oh, the, mm. they got the 1%. Bags. Right, they got they bean got bags. bags. They got perks. Uh, their boss calls mm. them by their first name. They can wear jeans. All of that's worth the yeah, lower yeah. wages. But I oh, and also everyone gets treats. Like, you know, everyone has, oh, I didn't have an iPhone in my day or like whatever the fuck it is. It's like, yeah, but you bought a fucking house <laughs> with like some money you found down the back of a sofa. Oh yeah, which you also <laughs> had and you didn't rent from a fucking app, you prick. So here's where he, um, here's where he, he, he sort of he is the point of his argument. He says, if the Times YouGov MRP analysis this week is broadly right, it wasn't. The, or it wasn't based <laughs> no, on it. It was not. It wasn't based on subsequent polling. Who's to say what's going to happen in the next ten days? The Lib Dems would move from third place to second place in about 120 seats. Um, 
a huge increase between 2017 and 2019 in the number of seats where the opposition are the Lib Dems would materially contribute to a vague but important sense of momentum. What? This what? may well be combined with an equally vague but important sense that Labour had wandered deep into the wilderness and perhaps combined too with a vague but important sense that Boris Johnson's post-Brexit nirvana had not materialized. If so, when on December 13th we survey... vague but important sense that Boris Johnson's post-Brexit nirvana has not materialized. It has definitely, con- concretely not materialized. By the way, the Lib Dems have said that they would consider going into government with Boris Johnson. In what world... Do the Lib Dems present a more principled opposition to the, to the Tories and the Labour Party? Um, because the most kind of principled opposition to the right wing is actually to just do what they say, but right. also get a tax on plastic bags. That That is what doing politics is. Whereas Jer- Jeremy Corbyn is just doing, you know, like whinging. He's pandering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, here's, the, here's the thing, right? Like, this is what you have to remember, that bad right wing political writing is not about politics at all. It's just about the writer. Yeah, this it's is, about why Sandra won't let me see the kids. This is just this this is just Matthew Perez sort of squeezing his eyes shut and clicking his heels together and being like, "I want it to be 2012 again, or 2016 even." But because they're just writing the same column over and over again, it's just like it's like Nick Cohen at the Observer, same column every week. You don't even if someone just reads me the copy on a Sunday, I know exactly who it is. Like, the, does this ever not get tiresome? Apparently um, not. No, it, I mean I. It, it, it it's doesn't. Apparently, it's the easiest yeah. fucking job on the planet. It doesn't because I, mm. I mean, again, these people are at risk of automation. All right, so here's here's how Matthew Paris ends uh, this article because again, like you know, how every single factual statement he makes is wrong. He's mm. like he he quotes polls that are shown to be out of date the following day. Here is the prestige. Well, my well, my admiration for Joe Swinson's judgment is not unbounded. She's not stupid, she's not a cheat, and she's not forever. Can anybody tell me what the Lib Dems just had found out about them earlier today? It's something to do with, like, the polling, is it, and how they, nope, like, repeated? No, no, no. Oh, is it it's not? Um, okay. Jo- so, so, according to Gibbo Ricey, Josh, <laughs> <laughs> they have suspended a senior member of their campaign team who apparently forged emails to support a legal threat against a journalist at Open Democracy. Oh, I did oh, see shit, that. Yeah. So, oh, oh, Joe Swinson's not a cheat, but, you know, next fucking day. Mm. The next day, it's like, oh, yeah, turns out the Lib Dems have literally been breaking the law and cheating. Oh, my God. Matthew Paris has, like, the inverse <laughs> lays of heaven. Like, everything he says will be, like, proven to be wrong the next day. Can Matthew Paris please write a column where he insists that, like, climate change is not real? I think well, that, I mean, the climate change is real. On and that, then yes. the next day, on, yeah. On that note, it's probably worth noting that Dan Hodges, like, put out his tweet predicting that Corbyn wouldn't win this election. So I would just like to extend my congratulations to uh, Prime Minister Corbyn. Uh, <laughs> no, come on, so who's saying? Don't curse it. Uh, what was the fucking? And speaking of like Dan Hodges types, my favorite tweet of the day probably has to go to our boy Andrew Lillico. He of he of horny for women in the Nakab fame. Um, <laughs> who posted that tweet? It was like Are these people speculating about the Queen's death. Don't you realize it's treason? Do you expect the courts to have a sense of humor? And it's like you are the lamest whole Molander motherfucker. Like like who? Like honestly, like how is that? How is that a real take? Like how is Andrew Lillico not a parody account that he's like? Oh, actually, I think you'll find speculating about the Queen's death is illegal. It's like fuck off. You nerd. So we need to get we need to we need to get Andrew Lillico into the European Parliament so he and, and Ursula von der Leyen can work together to work out the Green Deal for the future, where you can't make fun of monarchs, but what you can do is give like a million pounds to someone whose startup is gonna like like somehow solve climate change by nuking the moon. Like I said, European politics is a tremendously surreal place. I would not put it past him. Um mm. and I think on that note it might be time for us to close out this fine episode. Uh, so, David, thank you very much for coming into it's the studio today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you all for having me. You're very welcome. No, it's thank been our pleasure. Um, we don't have any any more live show to plug because you just came to see us uh, two days ago with Rob Delaney and Vauxhall. Thank you very much for uh, for com- having come out to that. Um, but we do have our election live stream to plug. Oh, That's hell yeah, right. we do, my bitches. Crash Future is going to do its second ever Twitch stream uh, on December 12th. We're going to be covering the election 
We're going to be getting calls in from all sorts of friends and well-wishers. And we and, are going to be drinking cans. And you will see us drinking cans. And yeah. you can see us drinking celebratory cans or desultory cans. The important thing is we're going to be drinking cans. Exactly. Um, and why say second ever Twitch broadcast, because we haven't done one before. And we don't want that to be our first one. So we're going to do another a test one at some point earlier on. Yeah, we were on Twitch with um, um, Hussain that time. No, not, not Hussain. Hassan Piker that yeah, time. We have the same, same guy. Oh. Same yeah. person. <laughs> Hussein Piker, the mix Hussein of two. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would like to say, I don't, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to kind of come in the Twitch stream because of like technical stuff, but I do have like various white claw in the fridge and mm. yeah, be the place I'm staying. So nice. um, we'll do that thing like from Newsbreakers, be like voice of Hussein Kazvani, and it'll be like just a picture of like a dick or something. <laughs> a picture of Hassan Piker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, just, just Shinji. Just, always well, Shinji. It, well, in the office, just put a picture of my. Just put a picture of my face on Hassan Piker's body and no one will kind of know the difference. Ripped Hussein. <laughs> Hussein if he didn't think sex was haram. Um, yeah, so uh, let's see. Uh, David, do you have anything uh, coming out? Uh, no. Uh, well, yeah, yes. Twitter? No. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to plug it. This is the, 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 this is the plug, plug section. Yeah, exactly. Plug whatever you want, baby. Yeah. Well, if you are interested in coming to Europe, just let me know. I live in Rome. Happy to host mm. you. Give <laughs> nice. me a shout. There That's it is. It. So uh, you're looking for a good bunga bunga party, David, busy man. David Adler, David, David, David Adler, who will be reading out his address on the podcast. <laughs> I've been doxed before. I'm going to dox myself this yeah. time. It's good to get on ahead the election live stream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if Labour wins, David Adler's going to for every seat mm. Labour takes, David's going to say another character of his address. Jesus. <laughs> um, you better start campaigning for the Lib Dems now, my friend. <laughs> you're going to get doxed. And while my admiration is not unbounded, <laughs> she's not a cheat. She's not a liar. And I'm not voting Lib Dem. <laughs> mm. If you want to help prove Matthew Paris wrong, which I think we all do, and if you want a government that is going to like make the European Union not suck, then you basically need to not just vote Labour, because I think if you're listening to a bonus episode of Trash Future, you're probably pretty safe uh, as a Labour voter. But you need to make sure that you're getting out and campaigning in marginals, unsexy marginals. Like, Don't just go for big scalps. You have to go for... like. The workaday um, marginal crew in Netwich, for example, we need people campaigning there up in, up in the north. Mm. We need people campaigning in like um, keeping Lloyd Russell Moyle in his seat uh, down in Brighton. We need to really work hard and we need to make sure that we get the MP enough seats that we can form a government and not just embarrass the other the, the, the members of the front bench. Um, because remember, the Lib Dems and the Tories have tons and tons and tons of money. The Tories from the deeply cynical and evil and the Lib Dems from the deeply deluded and stupid. All we have is people. And so that means you have to, we have to use that resource so we can have those conversations with people. We have to phone bank, knock on doors, campaign and get out the vote. In the meantime, uh, we will see you in a few days. Thanks, everybody. Yep. Bye. Take care.